0: Welcome back to the program. Think about the movies we remember. They're a little like old songs or great books or great meals. They're purveyors of a kind of double imagery, instantly making yesterday's events today's reality. But with movies, there's something more in the way they stay with us, the way the images play around in our heads, and memories and words and images become embodied in who we are. If you grew up watching and loving movies like my guest, esteemed film critic Kenneth Duran, They take on an even more powerful meaning. Now Turan has taken a look at these movies in the rearview mirror of a lifetime of film and chosen his 54 favorites. Kenneth Turan is the film reviewer for the Los Angeles Times and National Public Radio, and his newest book is not to be missed, 54 favorites from a lifetime of film. Kenneth Turan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Great to have you here. I want to talk, first of all, about your early love for movies and, and growing up in New York, watching the million-dollar movie on WOR, which was a <laughs> bit, as someone that grew up in New York, it was a big deal at the time.
1: Oh, gosh, million-dollar movie kind of ruled my life. and You know, I just, you know, used channel surfing, whatever the equivalent of channel surfing was in those days you know I came across these old movies and they just kind of intoxicated me and Million Dollar Movie they they had them on you know several nights a week uh, old classic Hollywood films and uh, they just enraptured me.
0: What was it about them? You know we, we think a lot about the way we see movies and the way many of us have grown up watching movies in a dark theater in a collective experience but this was it on television in the early days of television and yet the images were just as powerful
1: yeah i mean i must have some kind of affinity for movies like i said so i've been able to be a film critic for so long they just immediately attracted me you know just like you hear about you know kids who you know are attracted to the piano when they're 2 or 3 or something like that i just was attracted not i didn't want to make films i had no idea about making films and i still don't but I wanted to watch them. I wanted to be pulled into those stories. And I loved being pulled into those stories.
0: How did you avoid over the years that desire to see so many movies and not want to make your own, not want to put your imprimatur somehow on a film?
1: It's just not what I feel I can do. You know, I mean, it's just like I don't watch, uh, you know, the NBA and feel oh God, I wish I was out there. You know, I want to enjoy movies. That's what I love. Uh, You know, I tell people I'm not, you know, sometimes people think critics are frustrated filmmakers or frustrated screenwriters, and I say, no, 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 I'm a frustrated moviegoer. I want to see better movies. I want to be taken away the way only movies can take you away, and I can't take myself away. I need other people to do that.
0: Is there something more powerful? about the reviews that you do, the responsibility that you feel as the film critic for the Los Angeles Times, for the newspaper in the city that's the home of the film business.
1: I mean, that's an interesting question. A friend of mine once called my job the equivalent of being the anthracite critic for the Scranton Times. You know, it really is uh, the, the belly of the beast. It's very exciting to work here because it's where people care about movies and where if you make a mistake, if I say that something happened in 1921 and it didn't happen, uh, I get a lot of mail. Uh, it's, a, it, it's a privilege to work in a city that cares so much about film. I
0: really love it. And, of course, the corollary of that really addresses the 54 movies movies that you've picked out in this book and that it's a little like that proverbial question people always joke about, you know, which child do you like the best?
1: (laughs) It was I tell people it was harder to get the list down to fifty four than to write the actual book. You know (laughs) The writing of the book was fun, and getting the list down to 54 was torture. But I just decided that's the number I wanted, and I just had to make it fit.
0: Was there any kind of objective criteria that went into it from your perspective?
1: Not really, no. I, you know, I don't believe there's much objective about reviewing, having done it for a while. It's an extremely, extraordinarily subjective business. Uh, your job is not to be objective, But to make your subjectivity kind of available to other people, make it helpful to other people, make it help them enjoy films, see films, things like that. But it all comes from what's inside you, uh, and trying to avoid that is just fruitless.
0: What do you see as the role of reviews for the average filmgoer that either reads the review before they go see a film, and I know people that won't read the reviews until after they've seen a film.
1: No, I know people like that, too. Uh, some of them are my own friends. <laughs>
0: but I think it's
1: twofold. I mean, uh, number one, obviously, if you, you, you're helping to, there's a, you helping, know, there's a phrase I use in the book I stole from Maimonides, you want to be a guide for the perplexed. You know, you want to help people. You know, there's a ton of movies out there. In Los Angeles, sometimes there are 15, 20 films open every week. And you want to help people decide what they're going to enjoy. That's the main thing I do. Now, the other thing is to try and you know explain them maybe you know give people a point of view on them that might help them enjoy them and also to provide something that's enjoyable to read i mean that's what i tried very hard to do in the book and i try hard in everything i write you just want to uh, to write something that people take pleasure in reading
0: the one thing that comes across so powerfully and not to be missed is thinking about context of movies and and when they came out and when they had the impact that they had and how they not unlike wine, how they age over time.
1: Yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's a very good point you make. I hadn't really thought about that, but it's really true. I mean, movies are just so much a product of their specific time and place. Yet they have to transcend that. You have to deal with both aspects of it. I mean, one of the films I think of in that context uh, is Vertigo, the Alfred Hitchcock film, which is in my book. When it came out, critics and audiences thought it was just ho hum, so so. And today, you know, there are a lot of critics who feel that it's one of the best films ever made. And why did that change? You know, why didn't they like it then? Why do they like it now? It's not a question of who was right or wrong. It's a question of understanding the dynamic that made both of those things happen.
0: And in looking at your list, you have certainly many more films from the 40s and 50s than from, say, the 70s and the 80s and 90s. Was that a conscious decision? Talk a little bit about that.
1: No, that's a, it's a, it's a, another good question. I... Uh, I picked these films one by one, just kind of as a, you know, I made a big, big list, and then I went through it, and each time I said, well, I can't miss this one, I would see it again, and I'd write about it, and I'd look for the next film. So I had no sense of what came from what year. I didn't do it that way. And at the very end, my editor said, you know, we need to organize this book in some way, and I said, well, maybe I'll organize it by decades. So I organized it by decades, and I was completely shocked to see the, you know, the situation that you described, that there's hardly anything from the 70s and 80s, and a lot from the 40s and 50s. You know, it, it reflects what I like. I'm a real classicist. I really like old-fashioned films. I like films the way they used to make them, or kind of variations of those. And uh, But I didn't really realize that until I looked at the, at the list, and I said, oh my god, look what I've done.
0: Talk a little bit about the 70s and 80s, where there are, out of the 54, there's there's five films, really, that cover the 70s and 80s. Why so few?
1: You know, it's not that I, you know, it's, a, it's an old line, but it's not that I love the films from the 70s and 80s less. It's that I love the other films more, you know. It's just what really pulls me in. And, you know, there's a lot of films in the 70s and 80s that I didn't put in that I really like a lot that in another incarnation of this book might have been in there. But it's just the, the classical stuff. You know, I was shocked, as I was say, when I make this list, the decade that most films are from is the 1950s. And we're used to deriding the 50s, you know. It's you know, it's conventional, it's boring, it's tedious. Nobody has a good word to say about the 50s. But I found this astonishing number of great films that I loved in the 50s. I mean, all about Eve, The Asphalt Jungle, Sunset Boulevard, Singin' in the Rain, Seven Samurai, Kiss Me Deadly, Sweet Smell of Success, Vertigo, and that isn't even all of them. You know, somehow the 50s fused kind of traditional Hollywood stuff with the kind of newness that came after World War II. They were going to do things a little bit the old way, but because of the war and the changes that had brought, they couldn't do things totally the old way. So I think that kind of dynamic really worked for me in terms of filmmaking.
0: Was there kind of an inflection point in the 50s with respect to films and filmmakers that carried through to really the second half of the 20th century?
1: That's an interesting thought. I don't know, you know. It's possible it did. But, I mean, I just, like I said, I pick these films one by one. I don't have an overarching thesis about what this says, you know. These are individual films that I love that I think, you know, again, I want to, I kind of have a messianic or a proselytizing aspect to this book because I think people will like these films. I think the main reason I became a film critic was just to kind of share the pleasure of the films I love. You don't really become a critic, I think, to criticize the stuff you don't like. Right. It becomes part of the job, inevitably. You do it because you love film and you want other people to have the pleasure that you have in them.
0: I wonder if somebody, you know, it's the old story about if an alien came down and, you know, (laughs) the sentences that always start that way. I mean, for those of us that grew up watching these films, and and you and I are pretty close to the same age, so there's a sense that these films impacted us. In a powerful way, in the context of the time, or, or if some young person who loved film just decided today to go through this list and work their way through it and watch all these films, if the impact in a contemporaneous sense would be the same,
1: you know, I think in some ways they would be. You know, I mean, I can remember the impact on me. As a young person of uh, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, which was a film in 1932, which had uh, a very big impact in 1932, I saw it probably 30 years later, and uh, it had a huge impact on me, you know, so I think if films have integrity and really skill, and if they if they go that deeply into people when they came out, they continue to do that. I mean, I was no less shocked than a viewer in 1932.
0: One of the films that you've listed on in the 50s, which I have to ask you about because it is one of my personal favorites, and one you don't see on everybody's list, which is Sweet Smell of Success.
1: Yeah, I just love Sweet Smell of Success. <laughs> <I> mean,
0: <laughs> it's
1: it's it's great performances. Some uh, Tony Curtis and uh, Burt Lancaster really play off each other brilliantly, and it's just written so well. You know, the, it's one of these famous Hollywood stories where it, it just, you know, there was a lot of chaos in terms of who was written, you know, different scripts were written, thrown out, rewritten, the kind of stuff that you think, you know, is never going to work and that it turns out working. But it ended up being largely written by Clifford Odets, who wrote this kind of very elevated poetic dialogue. And uh, Alexander McKendrick, who, who directed the film, has written extensively about what it was like. And he said, you know, Odette said to him, you know, this, is, this dialogue is going to sound like it's not going to play, but it's going to play. You know, it sounds, when you read it, it sounds elevated. But if you if you play it fast and you play it realistically, it's going to sound great. And he was totally correct. Uh, this dialogue sparkles. This is really one of the, I think, one of the best written of American sound films.
0: Were there films that you started off with that just had to be on the list? That they were five, six, seven that you that were just you had to get those down and then work from there. Films like perhaps Casablanca and and some others.
1: Well, actually, Casablanca was a late choice. I almost hmm. didn't put Casablanca in, I and mean, I love Casablanca, but I had felt, you know, as I say in the book, well, everyone knows about Casablanca, everyone loves Casablanca, is like you know kind of the reverse of beating a dead horse to put it in, but. You know, then I saw something where someone was deriding Casablanca as being old-hand and old-fashioned, and I said, well, this just isn't right. And I looked at the film again, and I fell in love with it again, and I put it in. But there were you're correct, there were like half a dozen films that had to be in there, Children of Paradise, uh, The Earrings of Madame Duh, The Godfather, uh, a Yiddish-language film called The Dibic which entranced me from the moment I saw it. There were some films that absolutely positively would be on any incarnation of this list, and then others, you know, sometimes you think, well, maybe I should have put this one in or left this one out. This list became kind of a living object. It became kind of fluid. And every day I think differently about it.
0: And eventually you had to sort of lock it down, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it was horrible to lock
0: it down. I mean, for the, when
1: I got down to the, you know, to the 54th film, I literally kind of had a playoff. You know, and, you know, I just watched half a dozen films to see which one I really loved the most, to see which one would get the last slot.
0: Talk a little bit, Ken, about the films from the 80s, because the three films that you've picked from that era are not films that are, come immediately to mind for everyone.
1: These are unusual films, and uh, you know, I don't know that they represent the 80s or not, but they're the ones that I ended up with. I mean, Day After Trinity is a documentary about the making of the atomic bomb, which I, you know, kind of changed my life when I watch this. You realize who made the bomb, what kind of people made it, and what they were like, and how a weapon this horrible actually got to be made. It's f- totally fascinating. First Contact is a film even a lot of film critics haven't seen. This is a documentary of using real footage that was shot in the 1930s when a group of miners went into the interior of New Guinea and met these native tribesmen who had never seen white people before, had no idea white people existed, and these miners had cameras with them. And you get to see first contact between you know, these very different groups. You get to see what Columbus saw when he arrived in the New World, what the conquistadors saw. You get to see how local people respond to white people who come in that they never knew existed. I just couldn't believe the footage I was seeing. And Distant Voices, Still Lives is a British film. It's a memory film. It's one of the great fusions of music and image that I think uh, we've got in the 20th century. And it's Terence Davies about his memories of growing up uh, with a horrible father at the end of World War II. Uh, it's just a brilliant film.
0: Are there filmmakers that have multiple films on this list? And looking at it, I, nothing immediately comes to my mind, but I, I'm sure there must be.
1: Yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple of filmmakers that I link together in double bills. You know, there are actually three filmmakers that I like their film so much that uh, I had two of them on this list. Uh, Orson Welles, who's probably my favorite director. I've got Touch of Evil and Chimes at Midnight. Ernst Lubitsch, one of the great Hollywood, you know, humanistic filmmakers. The Shop Around the Corner, and To Be or Not To Be. And then there's a slightly lesser known film, director, rather, named Leo McCary, another Hollywood veteran. I've got two films of his, Make Way for Tomorrow and Love Affair. And, you know, in some ways I didn't want to have these double features. You know, I'd like to expose people to more directors and more different films. But I love all these films so much I just could not leave them out.
0: As you look at more contemporary films in the context of the ones that you've picked in the 30s, 40s, and and particularly this, this large quantity in the 50s, is there anything that that emerges for you in terms of how film has progressed and what we've seen in terms of filmmakers
1: you know one of the things I noticed especially when I looked at the films I picked for you know what I call the new century the year since the, uh, the year 2000 I have a lot of foreign language films on it and again that wasn't a conscious choice it's just that filmmaking sophistication has increased so increased so greatly all around the world that I just found that these films are really taking kind of the kind of classic filmmaking i like and taking them in new directions and uh, a prophet is you know a prison film it's a french prison film but it's uh, it's wild and crazy it's kind of surreal and hyperreal it's a fabulous film uh, is a footnote is an israeli film that i thought was wildly funny and just inventive and different And it was, you know, really exciting for me to see that this kind of filmmaking, uh, sophisticated, hugely sophisticated filmmaking, is coming from all over the world.
0: In putting this list together, obviously you've seen many of these films many times. Did you go back and look at some of them again, or was this really from a lifetime of experience, Ken?
1: I looked at every film again. And that was one of the great joys of doing the book. Every single film that I wrote an essay about each of the 54, I watched again specifically for the book. And that was such a pleasure. I mean, oh, my God, to see your favorite films all over again. It's like, you know, one of the world's great parties, you know, me and all my 54 closest friends.
0: <laughs> and if you had to add on to this list, did, did the rest become also rands, really? Is this this is the core 54?
1: No, I mean, the films that I still, you know, uh, when, you know, when uh, Peter O'Toole died, I really kicked myself for that, including uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, if I had to do this all over again, I'd find a spot for Lawrence of Arabia. You know, but I don't know what film I would kick off. I don't know which film you know I would uh, boot off the island. I just don't want to boot them off the island. I like them on the island.
0: <laughs> Los Angeles Times and NPR film critic Kenneth Turan, the book is not to be missed. 54 favorites from a lifetime of film. Ken, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you. This was such a pleasure. They were great, great questions, and I really mean that. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.